Welcome to the Go Big with Gib podcast, a place for professionals, business owners, and entrepreneurs to talk about their big wins. Hey, Chris, how are you today? Doing great, Gib. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Thanks for uh, coming on to the program today. I really appreciate it. Um, To get things started, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. My name is Chris Dieter, and I'm the Chief Communications Officer at Influential. Cool, man. So, Chris, you and I have known each other. I was thinking about it earlier today. I think we have known each other for about 25 years. Does that sound Does that sound right to you? Yeah, we were kids. So, uh, yeah, I don't feel as bad knowing that we were, we were kind of kids. But, yeah, 25 years. That yeah. sounds about right. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm dating us a little bit. but yeah, um, A lot. <laughs> but I did think about it. I think that we, if, if my recollection is correct, I think we – we started hanging out and got to know each other back in about 1998, probably. Yeah, that sounds about right. Because I was a freshman at Pepperdine, uh-huh. um, and you were a year ahead of me, I believe. Yep, yep. class of yep. Uh, 2001. Okay. Yeah, because I ended up graduating in December of 01, and I think you graduated that May. Yep, correct. You were, you were always an overachiever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I um, I graduated one semester early. That's mm-hmm. right. Um, so, Chris, you know, back in the day, we used to play in a band together, and I wanted to talk about that just a little bit because I know we're going to go through. Um, you know, I want to talk about your on- entrepreneurial journey and things it- of that nature. But, um, you know, back in the day, we used to play music in we when we were students at pepperdine we used to play at the malibu inn okay. and we had a weekly gig there um you remember that place of course how can i forget it's it's funny <laughs> it's it's still there but now it's a, a fashion store um and that it's it's been gone for quite a while and I'm, I'm sad to see it but the bones of it it still looks the same externally um but it, it's now a store called aviator nation I think I remember that because, you know, I was out in L.A. um, back around the end of May, Eh? and I believe you and I got together on May 31st. We met at the coffee shop Eh? um, in West Hollywood, Uh and I had just come from Malibu that day and seen that place. So it's a fashion shop? Yeah, it's it's the whole whole entire place, you know, before it was like half restaurant, half bar. The whole thing is like a showroom for this for this brand and it's sort of like a it's kind of got like a little rock and roll edge to it so i think they converted that area into like a stage studio sort of environment so it sort of still lives on but it's uh it's different now very much it's it's not a place you can go in there and grab a drink and and watch a music set every night but uh it's it's still sort of there yeah you remember that guy Sammy that used to run? Of course, yeah, <laughs> yeah. What whatever happened to that guy? I you, don't you know. Ever, I mean, I think you, I you remember. You know, in the, in the ensuing years, seeing him in, uh, you know, because I moved into Los Angeles and started my career there. Um, I remember seeing him in like the nightclub scene and stuff like that, pouring drinks at other places and stuff like that. But yeah, I don't know. That's a, that's a blast from the past. Yeah, I, I remember him. Um, but yeah, we used to we used to play a bunch of covers. I remember I was thinking about it today, trying to think of all the bands that we used to cover. I know 
we played Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam and Stone Temple Pilots. I remember we did a, we did some Creed songs. It looks like they're back together yeah. playing again. I saw um, that. There's there's a bunch of of bands that are now hitting their like 20 or 25 year anniversary and and they're coming back out and it's it's funny now cuz you'll listen to like a a classic rock station and that's the stuff. So we are officially vintage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think our our style was basically um I mean, you know, it was 90s rock in 2000s, yep. mm-hmm. you know, basically yep. 90s, mostly 90s. Yeah. And then There's early the 2000s. Era. It was totally the grunge yeah. era, then, then mixed with a, a bunch of Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> that, was, that, was your, <laughs> yeah. that was your special vocal cameo. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was uh, my little moment to, to shine, or I guess you <laughs> could call it. But yeah, we used to... I used to do so many cool songs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one day we'll have to. So, so, do you think you still have your singing chops? I mean, I'm sure you oh, know. You either got I'm them or better. you don't. I'm better now than I ever was. I, I'm not surprised by that. I mean, I know that we've jammed a couple of times mm-hmm. since you know the band, and I always remember. I do remember that you were better every time that mm-hmm. we played together, and. um so have you had the opportunity to play much music over the last couple of years? I mean, I know you're super mm-hmm. busy with your with your company and we've yeah. we've got, you know, grown up jobs, so to so to speak. But um, <laughs> do you get to play music anymore? Yeah, you know, not much. I I, I wish more. Um I, I did get to do a co- I mean, it's funny, with business, it's sort of like a secret weapon for me now. I have um a lot of like, you know, business uh social things that end up at karaoke bars and people are like oh damn (laughs) surprise us with that so uh i would i would say that uh might be some of it that still keeps alive um you know my when i'm in my car (laughs) to myself of course um but then also uh for my 40th birthday party uh my wife hired uh the band hours which is one of my favorite bands of that era um and i got to perform with them which was amazing um, and then like a, a year or two later, this was actually coming right out of the pandemic because I got COVID that night actually. But, um, I went to, I went, I went to the Viper room and uh, I was enjoying myself being completely unassuming. And the last song of the night is always this one called Fallen Souls. And I just, you know, kind of from the back, like yelled it out. And, uh, then he invited me to come up and perform it on the stage with them. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I have now performed at the Viper room, so. I guess that would that would be my one that would be the one thing I could say that I've done uh, that that has been sort of elevated. Um, but aside from that, yeah, not too much. But uh, I know I still got it, and luckily I'm not like that old yet. So you know, when you get older, your voice really changes. Like you know, Robert Plant can't sing like he used to, or whatever. I'm still young enough that I can pull that off for at least a few more years. <laughs> that band that you mentioned, Hours. Um, mm-hmm. I think I've seen some pictures of you from the Viper Room that night. Yep. Those lives guys on my, are, lives on my Instagram. Yeah, I think you pinned it to the top of your I Instagram. I did. It's right? one of my like, favorite memories. Yeah. So those guys, um, have they been around for a long time? I mean, they're like one of your favorite bands. Yeah, one of my absolute favorites. Uh, yeah, I saw them while I was in college, um, probably 98 or 9 or so. Um, I drove from Malibu all the way to the Viper Room. It was like an hour drive. 
and uh, was completely solo, didn't have tickets. Saw the lead singer, Jimmy Necco, who's now a dear friend of mine, and uh, and told him that I had driven an hour away and that I didn't have any tickets. And he put his arm around me, walked me into the venue, and then I, I, you know, then proceeded to do one of the most epic shows I've ever seen. Um, it kind of was one of these things for me that was like, oh shit, I'm never going to be good enough at this. Like I saw like true greatness that night and it sort of like made, made me like sober up to the reality that maybe like music wasn't going to be my thing. But, you know, I, I tried for a couple of years. I was, uh, you know, like you, I was at the firm, the entertainment management company in the early 2000s. And I think my hope was that I would, uh, you know, end up meeting the the pivotal people that would see my talent and whatever. But fact of the matter is when you're working as like a grunt assistant sort uh in in a management company they're not going to really see in that light so uh you know eventually things you know looked up for me and i i was able to transition out of the firm into a company called von dutch in 2003 and um you know that was sort of like a pivotal career change and then after that you know i always had the love for singing but i never like you know i never really tried again to like make it like a full-on professional thing so I know the firm has um, changed a lot. You know, I don't even know if it's still around. Um, it I'm is. Sure you 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 know. Um, it is. Um, yeah, what, Jeff is Quantance, Jeff Quantin still over he's, there? He's still at the helm, and yeah, they've relaunched it. Yep. Um, I believe it's much more um, like heavily favored in terms of um, film and television now, as opposed to the music side that it was before. Haven't heard much. They. They didn't, you remember when we were there, it was, you know, it gotten up to 250, 300 people. Um, I don't know if you knew this. Steve Bannon was working there when we were there. Uh, you know, the, the Trump advisor. Yeah, he was, he's, yeah, I saw he was a Trump advisor mm -hmm. and, um, some people messaged me and said, Hey, this guy was at the firm <laughs> back when you were there. Yeah. Um, do you remember him? And I Absolutely. don't, I don't remember him no. being there, but, um, I, I remember the name, but yeah. I don't remember meeting him or having any interaction with him yeah i remember meeting him on numerous occasions and you know running around the mail room basically and would stop in his office it was always very um you know short kind of curt answers and stuff like that um but yeah i mean no idea at the time who you would end up becoming and uh it, it became one of those things I, I think you know maybe seven or eight years ago when trump got into office uh, all the firm people were calling around and being like, can you believe that that's Steve Bannon? So, um, yeah, it's pretty wild to think that that was the case. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that was that was a fun time. I mean, the, the firm was a, a wild, you know, it was that rock and roll story. There was all these crazy moments that happened there and uh, interesting people that came through there. A lot of people that, you know, are still very, very successful in all these different realms. So, uh, you know, whenever I reconnect with anybody from there, it's always... Uh, you know, great times to kind of uh, reminisce about all the cool things that we did back then and see where everybody is now. That was a really cool time. And I remember, um, you know, some of our favorite bands were were at, with the firm at the time. So it was an opportunity to just never know who's going to walk in the door on yep. any given day. They had some movie people at the time as well. But for us as musicians, I remember you know, it was constant every day. It was somebody new on the elevator that you got an opportunity to talk to and build a relationship with. And, um, it was a fun time. How long were you there, Chris? I, I, mm -hmm. I don't remember the exact dates of when I was there, but mm -hmm. I know, I know I went to work there. I think Kai got the job. Mm -hmm. I think Kai got the job over there first, right? Yep. And then you went over there mm -hmm. and then, 
I joined after that, and well, I think I left before you did. Yeah, I, I? I would, I would, get, I would think so. Yeah, I think you were. I think you might have been there a year to year and a half at most. I was there like two years. I went in shortly after nine eleven. Actually, I think it was about two months later than that. And then, uh, yeah, I was there until two thousand three. And then I, the the manager of the band Stain, uh, Stained, uh, Gail Bowler. Uh, had actually referred me to this company, Von Dutch, that ended up being sort of my my change up in my career that sort of you know really catapulted me. Um, but yeah, that was uh, that was two thousand three. You had a lot of opportunity at Von Dutch. I know that that was a big change for you going well, from the music, you know, the entertainment industry into fashion. Um, is that the yeah. appropriate thing yeah. to call it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, talk talk to me about that. So, um, when did you transition over to Von Dutch, and and you know how did that go for you? Yeah, so uh, I like I said, uh, two thousand three, uh, Gail from the firm who was one of the founders and managed the band Stained and worked with Corn. Um, she had said, I remember, I yeah, remember Gail. Yeah, 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 yeah Gail was super great. nice. I think she had like, didn't she have Static X and some other? Yeah, yep, Static X well. and Power Man five thousand and. Yeah, fun, fun yep. group of like hard rock. She was like a hard rock chick. She was awesome. And um, yeah, she had told me about this opportunity. And, you know, I didn't, I wasn't particularly trying to be a fashion guy. I wasn't like, when she said it at first, it wasn't like, oh yeah, definitely. But, you know, I think I had just kind of been stagnant, you know, like had been in, in mailroom situations, you know, had worked as a, as a mailroom guy for so long that I kind of wanted something that was just, you know, a next step. And, uh, and then I saw, like, I took the interview based on her recommendation. And then I remember walking into the office and it was just this very raw new energy. And there was this like stop sign shaped table, um, very customized, very cool, like California sort of table with just a mess of pictures all over it. And I just started like sifting through them. And it's kind of like how they, instead of like a magazine or whatever, they're kind of just a little bit rebellious and just have this like mess of pictures as I'm, you know, sorting through them, I'm seeing, you know, like you know, Chris Cornell, who was then an audio slave and uh, Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake and Fred Durst and all sorts of interesting celebrity type of people. And they were all wearing this brand. I didn't, you know, this is like free social media too. Like this was something that would like, had kind of like captured people's attention and became like a cool thing before there was like ways to like really push that out. So it was like much more, um, celebrity fashion magazines that were the ones that were like exposing this. And then we had like a website that we sort of treated like social media. We had um, anytime we get celebrity photos, we would actually post them on our website in like a, a pop-up. And then we had like a grid of like all the celebrities that were on there. So um, we would always, you know, monitor the traffic and we got a lot of traffic to our website because we were sharing these celebrity photos uh, through our website, so it's sort of like a early form of uh, of you know celebrity marketing, celebrity social uh, before that even existed. Yeah, I remember that, and I remember seeing all those pictures of you. I mean, it it seemed like you know we had that similar experience at the firm, and that it was a revolving oh. door okay. of really talented people coming by there, people that were um, you know musicians and actors and actresses and then 
you just had like ultra celebrities coming into Von Dutch, and it was a it was a very edgy mm-hmm. company. Yep, um, and it was it was really hip. And I mean, tell tell me a little bit about your role there um, and how it changed over over the time that you were there. Yeah, no, it was really cool. I came in there. I guess at sort of a perfect time. I was twenty four years old, and um, I came over as the marketing assistant, and I did that for. I would say like maybe about a year. And, um, and then the woman that I was working under, um, you know, she was, she was the head of marketing, um, was feeling like, you know, it was like two, um, European guys that just like were giving her a hard time. And, um, one day she just said, screw it and, and bailed. And, um, and then I, I walked into their office and I just, you know, I was like, well, you know, she just left what's going on. And they're like, well, you know, you're, you're now her. So, um, so yeah, then by, you know, I was 25 years old at that point and I was, uh, you know, heading up the marketing for a multi hundred million dollar fashion brand that was all celebrity driven. And it was funny. Cause I guess in that like year period of time anyway, I'd like taken to the celebrity side of, you know, celebrity relations side of things. Uh, the office was above the store. And so, you know, I basically, if I didn't call them myself, you know, the celebrities myself, I would literally get like a buzz from the store manager downstairs and it would be like, oh, you know, Beyonce just walked in. It was that, that kind of thing wasn't irregular. And there was a day that uh, there was uh, Beyonce and Sheryl Crow walked in independently of each other 40 minutes apart. And that was just sort of like the magic of the time of that place. It was just something else. And, you know, we kind of, uh, we had a methodology of, of product placement that was basically like if, if celebrities came in, we you know, we, we gave them a whole bunch of stuff. We had a, um, a custom shop within uh, the back of the store where we had sewers and, and designers and we could make custom things like really quickly. And so, you know, we, we became this destination and the word amongst the celebrity community spread. And, uh, you know, before, you, before long, we had had just about every major celebrity in there. And um, we had a designer, a very... Um, eccentric designer uh christian odige was his name he passed away a few years ago of cancer um but he went on to do uh, his brand ed hardy and christian odige and you know was a very big figure in the industry but he was very bombastic i mean i remember he would ask us to like pop flashes with cameramen when he'd walk into the room and you know he was always trying to like do the hype yeah it was a little ridiculous but he was always trying to do the hype thing and um made it so you know that anytime a celebrity came in you know it was obviously good to get pictures of them in Von Dutch itself. But then aside from that, we would always end up doing pictures with them. So as a result of that, I think I have, you know, 200 plus uh, photos of me with celebrities. A lot of them, the majority of them are, you know, actually in the store when they would come and visit. But then, you know, eventually I started traveling to, um, you know, uh, movie awards and, and, and music awards and, and different shows like that and doing gifting lounges and, all sorts of celebrity product placement stuff. And so, uh, yeah, the, during that three-year period, I worked there from 03 to pretty much like the end of 05. Um, I, I amassed this huge celebrity picture uh, collection, which then ended up uh, being printed and putting up, put on my wall uh, at the PR company I started. And I had like a whole wall of fame for that. So um, all good memories. Yeah, I remember... Um... What was it? I think you had a picture with Jay Z. Is that yeah. is that true? You had a picture with Jay Z, and uh-huh. I think um, 
I, I mean, I know there was hundreds of, of mm-hmm. people and uh, hard to pick out just a few, but well, um, I think Dennis Rodman used to come in um, and see you from time to time. Is that that's right? That's very, very true. Um, yeah, the, the Jay-Z picture is another one of my uh, pinned photos on Instagram. I think it was just such an amazing thing of the time that, you know, he came in and he put immediately put on, um, you know, a hat and a t-shirt, both emblazoned with the Von Dutch logo. And, you know, that's not something that happens anymore. Like celebrities of that magnitude don't become, you know, like just, you know, posters for, for a brand like, uh, like, like they did then. And, um, you know, that was just amazing. I mean, got that photo with him and then loaded him up with a ton of clothes. And then he proceeded to wear it like almost every day on his tour for like, you know, the next six months. So, um, yeah, it was a really powerful thing that we were doing. We were, we were seeing the clothes in, you know, music, um, and, and in TV shows and movies. And so it constantly be popping up in popular culture. And so through that period of time, I'd say 2003 to six, um, you saw so much fun Dutch. I mean, I remember I'd go to nightclubs in LA and like half the entire crowd was wearing Von Dutch or at least a trucker hat. That that fashion trend was just, you know, it's so indicative of like it's funny now, like the to show us how old we are, the kids who are, you know, their early twenties are having uh Y two K parties, millennium parties, and they're wearing the Von Dutch hats. So uh kind of kind of fun to see. <laughs> Let's talk about the business side of that a little bit. So well, back then was Von Dutch paying the celebrities to wear those clothes or were the celebrities just coming in and getting free clothing and then going out and wearing it, you know, all the time and bringing more business to the Von Dutch brand? And how, how did that work? Yeah, definitely the latter. There was never, ever uh-huh. any celebrity that was paid to wear Von Dutch. And I think that was part of the magic of it. It was that it was like, it was so coveted. It was so highly desired. It was so trendy. Um, that yeah, the celebrities, it became the cool kids club. I think, you know, big celebrities, and I guess this is sort of the life cycle of it. Big celebrities would be wearing the biggest A list, A plus list celebrities. And then it would have this, you know, trickle down effect. And, you know, eventually it got to like D list celebrities. And I think one of the issues of the brand, aside from many others, uh, was that, you know, it's sort of, we, we didn't have like a barometer of like, a lot of the best brands that stay around for a long time keep a standard and they say, you know, this is who we'll give it to. Not everybody kind of gave it to everybody. Unfortunately, it just became, you know, uh, such a celebrity, uh, copycat sort of thing that it, it had filtered down into like the reality show stars and really cheesy people. So, um, yeah. And also at the same time, it was sort of like the end of a life cycle of fashion, you know, like this, trucker hat trend wasn't going to last forever so um it was a good run though hell of a run it, it's still something to this day that um you know is is very interesting to people um i remember for probably 10 years after that i would go to universities and speak on like the rise and fall of von dutch uh, it's so long ago now that it's like an irrelevant conversation but uh i remember thinking you know that the the college students thought it was so cool like they were so intrigued by it and you know it, it really was, you know, one of, one of the last kind of last independent brands of its kind. It never really reached out. Like it got everywhere, but it just ran out of steam, like just about then before it became a really, really big deal. It, it probably was in, you know, the, the $200 million range when it was at its peak, but it like, it unraveled very quickly. 
Um, and it's funny to see, you know, there are some brands of that same era, like like True Religion jeans came up around the same time. And not that they're like the coolest brand or that they're a major deal still, but they're, they're you know, they do a couple hundred million in revenue and they're a healthy company. And there, there's definitely a way that if that company had been operated correctly, could have, you know, could have lasted longer. So is Von Dutch still around right now? Yeah, it's still around. And in fact, it's, you know, it's kind of become retro. So a lot of the, you know, a lot of the kids are wearing it now as like this retro cool thing. And, you know, you had uh, Kylie Jenner was wearing it for a little while and it got a hype thing. Um, And, you know, it ended up on TikTok a bit too. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's around. I don't think it's, I'd be surprised if it's ever what it was. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's still, it's still around. And, uh, you know, I actually bought a hat say maybe two years ago or something. I'd never seen a ma- model that was just all blacked out, black patch, black everything. And I was like, all right, you know, the, 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 the styles at the time were very bright and outlandish. This is like low key. And, you know, as much as I was like, all right, well, kind of like wearing a relic, it's like, you know, I was, I was the head of marketing for this relic. So. Um, you know, <laughs> I was hoping that if anybody sees it and goes, Oh, that's cool. I'll be like, Oh yeah, I used to do that. But, uh, yeah, kind of funny. Yeah. It'd be a good conversation piece. Exactly. Um, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I heard you speak on another podcast, um, hey. where you talked about Kylie Jenner wearing it and that giving oh. a, a little bit of a boost to the brand. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm sure that that helped. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a huge thing. I mean, the, the Kardashians and the Jenners are uh, beacons and trends. And when they do something, people follow suit. So I'm sure they got like a really nice spike from that. But she didn't continue to wear it. And I don't think that they were compensating her to wear it. So, um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen too much of it recently. Yeah. So what did you do next after that? I'm, I'm assuming this mm-hmm. is when you started your own PR company, American Rebel. That's correct. So. Um, I did that until, yeah, like I said, the end of 2005. And did you have any um, carryover from your time at Von Dutch in terms of the people that you worked with? Were there people you had made, you know, met and relationships yeah. that you had made at Von Dutch that translated over to American Rebel? Absolutely. Yeah, it was a big part of it. And it was actually cool because at the time what I was doing was like some of the times I would go – when it was Von Dutch, they didn't want because they they had their own store and impressive place. So they had, you know, if 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 I was going to go do celebrity placements, they wanted it to happen over at the store. So I would I would go over there and I would go do my store thing like I'd usually do, but you know, fake it till you make it in the beginning. So I would bring like a whole bunch of shoes from Osiris in my trunk, and after after I'd have them come and you know get get laced up in the von dutch gear i would take them to the back alley and i'd open up my trunk like i like it was like all the stuff was hot or something and uh yeah i would show them shoes and get them to put them on and you know a lot of my early shoe pictures for osiris were literally like in a parking lot because i just like given them out of my trunk or whatever but i tried to do what i could to like you know in fact in the early before i even got an office um, Osiris was adamant about sending me out shoes. So they sent me out like a few hundred pairs and I lived in a small house in, um, Laurel Canyon and I didn't have room for them. So literally had a tent in my backyard, a big tent, like you could like live in it sort of tent. And this tent was like my entire storage closet. And 
you know it's amazing that like there was never like a weather incident that like you know it rained but like that that was a good tent um but yeah that stuff i mean if anybody knew that it was in my backyard and could hop the fence and gotten away with it so I, i'm gonna again fake it till you make a great at great risk of the brand i kept and i kept the shit in my tent for like i don't know several months at least i remember um i had the singer brandy uh wanted some stuff um, actually she wanted some Von Dutch. And then I told her when I was over at the store about, uh, the shoes and she wanted some like right then. So I was like, all right, well, the only way is to like, come up to my house. So she followed me up to my house and, uh, sat in my living room and threw a soggy tennis ball to my dog and kept bringing him back to her. And, um, I was like, all right, let me, let me go, go back to the, my storage and, and get you, you know, some shoes. So I ran back to my tent and loaded up you know 10 boxes of shoes and she tried them on right there and my, the photos were actually it was funny i remember delivering the photos to the brand and it looked like it was a, kind of on like a dingy couch in my place <laughs> so you know they, they were like photoshopping like fake backgrounds around her and stuff to like you know not make it look so crappy but uh shortly thereafter i i ended up i think it was only maybe four or five months total that i didn't have an office when i started american rebels so by you know by 2006 like mid 2006 i had the the american rebel office which was you know one office space maybe like 1500 square feet and eventually i ended up expanding and having four offices in that same building and it was it was unreasonably cheap for la i mean literally like 1500 bucks like a dollar a square foot per unit and you just don't see that anywhere this guy who was you know probably in his 80s and you know, own the building and just, you know, uh, and that there's a, a, a show from the seventies called three's company. And there was a guy named Mr. Furley and he, he looked like Don Knox, the actor, Mr. Furley is a goofy old man, but he never raised rent. And, um, you know, he kind of like helped me like grow the company as, as I had succeed, I would get another office and get more employees. And I think at the height, uh, American rebel PR was 17, maybe 20 employees. Did it completely bootstrap, didn't know anything about raising money at the time. So, uh, you know, I, I didn't even think about doing that, which was probably uh, a mistake in terms of the long-term health of it. But just the same, I, I wouldn't change the uh, the path or the trajectory or, or what happened, you know, throughout the journey. But uh, all, all good learning lessons. So you didn't have any investors in American Rebel at all. You just bankrolled the whole thing yourself? Yep. Exactly. And so, you know, and that was part of why, you know, in the beginning phase, I didn't even have uh, an office for the first, I guess, four months or so, because I needed to kind of build up a little bit of, of, of bankroll so I could at least have the office. Um, so yeah, it was it was a very grassroots operation. And, you know, I kind of cringe a little bit when I look back on it, because it was just, I mean, the building is like a little bit dilapidated, but I put my own spit on it. Like, American Rebel was very bold in its style. You know, this is very like mid 2000s with like old English writing. And like I had like red and white opposing walls. And I remember even like as the company was sort of winding down and we were trying to be like more serious and credible and more like fashion, um, especially the women at the office would complain like this, this like look is not, you know, not great. And it's funny because I would have, I would have parties at my office and I'd have celebrities have these celebrity parties 
And, um, you know, my wife now is an event planner, like a very elite event planner. And we do everything like a very high style now. And I just think about the fact that like I was doing these like parties and, you know, it has that like really like, like yellowy, terrible light, you know, the, the, you know, the, the long pole lights that are in the ceiling and popcorn ceiling and all that sort of stuff. But I don't know, I guess when you're young, you just, you you don't think about that as much at the same time. It was like all I could afford. So, um, you know, it was just, uh, doing the best with what I could and, you know, it was a fun run, you know, it was, uh, towards the end, it, it was a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit tenuous after the, um, you know, the, the crash in the economy in 08, um, up until then, 06 to 08 was fantastic. Like just grew year over year. And then after 08, it just became, you know, that was the last like five years of the company or so. It just became more arduous. There was a lot more work to be done for less money. Uh, everybody was grinding. Everybody was turning their pockets inside out. Uh, the fashion business is not, unless you're talking about the biggest brands in the world, is not like a tremendous money maker sort of place. Um, I enjoyed it, but like at the same time, it like, wasn't like financially fulfilling. And so, uh, you know, eventually I just realized the writing was on the wall and it was time to kind of cut bait and move on. Yeah. I remember, I think you did a clothing, uh, line with Scott Weiland. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. Uh, did a a clothing line with Scott Weiland and, um, and then also did one with Chester Bennington from Lincoln park. Also did one with Gene Simmons, uh, and a brand called Dussault. Um, yeah, I, I did a bunch of fashion collaborations with celebrities. My favorite one by far and away was the Scott Weiland collection. I was completely the catalyst for that. Some of the others I kind of jumped on as, you know, PR, but uh, that was something that I built actually. At, he wanted to do it. We met at Von Dutch. We met actually at the, the World Music Awards, and he told me that he wanted to do this. And he came into the Von Dutch store, and we ended up spending a whole afternoon together. It was literally one of my rock gods so i felt like i was walking on the clouds just like hanging with them and um and then he told me he wanted to do this line and i kind of knew that i was about to jump you know jump out of the von dutch thing and i again i thought that the life cycle of the brand was pretty much over so um i recommended to him that we take a beat and we wait on this and then you know once i started my pr company i started working with a, a client called english laundry that i don't think they're still around anymore but they were very much like uh david bowie sort of styling like british mod rock like it was still like suits and button downs and stuff like that but it had like a rock and roll feel to it and i remember that uh wyland's favorite artist you know of all was david bowie and so i was like you know this is perfect so i ran up by uh i ran up by the designer this guy chris wicks he's like this very brash english guy and when i when i suggested it to him he goes Oh, I love to be a fractured rock star. And so, um, hilarious. I'll never forget that. Never forget that line. And, and he knew, he knew that Scott had all these issues, but he loved it. You know, it's sort of rock and roll, sex, drugs and rock and roll or whatever. And so, yeah, the, the collaboration ended up happening. And, uh, me and, and Chris, the designer would go over to, um, Scott's house. Actually, he was, uh, you know, not one to leave the house all that much. Um, so he would, uh, invite us over to his house out in um, Valley Village. And um, we would go each season and go spend an entire afternoon with them and show them clothing swatches and, uh, you know, influence pictures, you know, pictures of David Bowie and, you know, old rock groups that he loved and stuff like that. And 
honestly, it was one of the most rewarding things ever of my career. Um, you know, the the brand ultimately met its demise, and sadly, Scott did as well um, due to substance issues. But um, you know, it was it was so cool. You know, like I and you know this because we used to play their songs in uh, you know in our band Rapture back in the day. So I think every song that we ever played, I felt like I like I owned it in some sort of way, and so. Um, you know, it was, it was super cool to, to spend that time with him and to do something creative and, and, you know, help one of your like rock star idols in, in accomplishing a dream of this. So did you have an opportunity to talk music with him at all? Was that something that you got a chance to do? I mean, I'm sure you guys were focused on this mm-hmm. business venture that you were working on, but did you have an opportunity to chat with him about, you know, music and things of that nature? Yeah, no, we definitely spent a lot of time together and, um, you know, would put on music even when we were designing at his house. And, um, yeah, it was a really, really fun. You know, I never, never had the nerve to tell him that we played his songs or anything like that <laughs> or, or that we should, or that we should jam or anything. But I, I also went, I went to his studio with him a bunch of times too. And I remember we did a, um, he got back together with, he, you know, he was with Velvet Revolver at that time. And then he reunited with Stone Temple Pilots. And um, I remember there was a, um, a Rolling Stone shoot about the reunion. And I got to go to that and got to meet the, the DeLeo brothers and Eric Kretz, who are all Stone Temple Pilots members. And it was a, a very interesting day. I mean, Scott was his own character, that's for sure. And, you know, those, those guys were always like really normal, down-to-earth guys. And I could kind of, even at that point, see the, um, you know, the difference. They, they knew... That getting together, getting back together was a good thing. It was great business. You know, everybody loves Stone Temple Pilots, but you know, it was it, it was it was sort of like going back to that like bad relationship and remembering you know the things that kind of drove you nuts about that person. Um, so I, I I don't I don't think it lasted all that long. I think they did you know one more uh, maybe one more album. I can't remember if it was one more album or if they just did a tour. And then it just uh, it didn't go on after that, unfortunately. But um, super cool timing for me to get to you know be a part of that. And uh, you know, I actually met him, like I said, at the World Music Awards, and it was with Velvet Revolver, and they had won an award that night. So I got to meet Matt Sorum, who's become a friend of mine, and uh, Izzy, who you know was their uh, bassist. So um, you know, it, it was really cool. Like they uh, they were they were a really fun rock act at that time. Yeah, I remember. I remember meeting those guys or a couple of those guys at the firm back yeah. in the day. Yeah. I remember. Um, I remember Dean came in one time yeah. and he was running late for a meeting, and I think he was meeting with uh, Peter Katzis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. That yeah, Peter name? was the one who oh. was representing Stone Devil Pilots. Yeah. Yeah. So he, I think he had a meeting with Peter, and he was running late, and he asked me. He said. Um, Hey man, do you know how to turn back time? And I had no idea what he was talking about. I just kind of <laughs> chuckled. <laughs> and uh, then I remember he said, um, "Look, I'm running late for a meeting, but oh. I need I need something to eat. I haven't eaten, you know, yeah. a couple of days or whatever." Yeah. And I remember telling him that I don't really have anything that's edible, but I do have this pizza from a couple days ago that we've been meaning to throw out, <laughs> and. Um, and I sat there with him and watched him eat two or three slices of, of this unedible pizza, you know, oh, inedible pizza that that I I was like, you know, I don't think you want this, but um, <laughs> he ate 
he ate quite a bit of it and was was <laughs> thankful. Uh, he was very grateful for it. So those guys were, um, you know, pretty wild, pretty fast yeah. and wild back mm-hmm. then. But um, yep. So yeah, talk to me about. Um, so that's really cool about your opportunity to to work with Scott Weiland like that. Tell mm-hmm. me, um, when did you close down American Rebel and move into your next venture? Yeah, so that was uh, September of 2013. I just had come to a point where it just didn't seem to make financial sense anymore. And it wasn't, you know, again, for me, like having fun in business is critical. And I just remember it not being fun anymore. So I closed down my shop the day after my birthday in September of 2013. And, uh, you know, kind of just didn't didn't have a backup plan necessarily. And um, kind of wandered out into the world and looked to to figure out what was next. What happened next? What was the next step in your <laughs> um, trajectory? Yeah, so um, you know, interestingly enough, my brother had moved out to LA, be like three years before that, four years before that, and um, he had he had initially come out to like work with me at American Rebel, but he wasn't like a fashion guy. He didn't make any sense for it. Uh, he tried to do a couple things as like a, um, a new business. Um, I gave him the title of like VP of new business and he brought in a client or something once, but um, he started kind of doing his own thing and, and getting into like the, the early world of, uh, you know, influence and social media handles. And so he was experiencing, experiencing some success on Twitter, uh, creating uh, verticalized accounts with called niche accounts. Uh, so, you know, I'd created, um, you know, at fashion and style, at travel, um, and, and some of these accounts have gotten really big, multi-million followers. And um, he started seeing brands were actually looking to, um, you know, advertise or, or pay to get that, you know, handle to, to push out a message for them. And sort of an aha moment, sort of, you know, this is uh, something you can get paid for. This is kind of crazy. Uh, but then also realizing that, that industry was completely raw and sort of like the wild west and that there hadn't been any structure, accountability, data or anything that was been brought to it. So um, he started like working on the early model of that. And um, I saw that as really interesting and, um, you know, knew that I could, you know, help in, in my own way, which has always been about, um, you know, relationships, culture, uh, being creative and, 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 you know, knowing celebrities and, you know what was happening was that the the influencers have kind of become the new sort of celebrity, and um, so I had this idea to um, you know bring bring the i bring the business to life in a in a physical sense by doing uh, a party at Coachella, and so we ended up renting a mansion at Coachella, um, you know, during the Coachella Music Festival in, in the Coachella Valley, and um, rented it rented a mansion, not not a huge mansion. By mansion, I'm like air quotes. It's like, you know, five bedroom house or something like that. And, and at the time, these influencers didn't have much money anyway. Like they were all mostly just getting started and they were young. So we invited them to come and stay at this house. And, you know, we probably had like 40 of them stay the first time. So because there weren't like 40 beds in a five bedroom house, we literally had cots and they were like, <laughs> like sleeping on cots. Uh, but it was, it was an awesome experience. It was like, basically like get paid to party, like come and be a part of these campaigns. Um, you know, we have 
uh, you know, food and refreshments and everything for them and, and a place to hang out, you know, a mansion in the Coachella Valley near the festival, um, all their friends or all the people of the industry would be there. And so we, we conceived this idea and, um, you know, worked on, worked on it for like four months to bring it to fruition. And, um, when we, when we did that, I reached out using all my press contacts and reached out to, um, entertainment tonight, uh, which is the biggest entertainment news show in the world. And uh, I reached out to a ton of my press contacts. They were one of the only ones who said yes. And I was like, what are they saying yes for? This is crazy. Um, so I called the executive producer who was a friend of mine and, you know, kind of advocated against myself in a way. I said, you know, I don't know if you if you know who's coming to this, but it's not Kim Kardashian. It's not Paris Hilton. It's like these influencers that like, you know, she was a little bit older. I was like, you know, your kids or like your nieces and nephews, something like that would know. And um, she's like, yeah, actually, I understand that, Chris. I um, spoke to my staff and said, you know, we're, we're the biggest news show in the world, entertainment news show in the world. We're also the oldest skewing. And, you know, what can we do to be to be young and with the times? And that youngest part of her staff and interns said influencers. So she said, based on my faith in you, Chris, and she and I had worked together uh, at um, Sunday's Film Festival. I had helped produce a... Um, a lounge with Gibson Guitar and Entertainment Tonight and Getty Images uh, on Main Street there. And I did it with her for two years. So she remembered me from there and knew that I was a good guy. And so between you know her faith in me and, and what the, the team told her, uh, she sent me a, a news crew. And so um, the Saturday afternoon of, of Coachella weekend, we got an entire day to shoot and interviewed me and my brother um, interviewed all the influencers, people like Logan Paul who'd never been on TV before. Got him like on national TV as a 16 year old, um, and and that you know ended up you know spending the day with them. And then Monday came around, and you know on the national TV segment about Coachella, they did like two minutes and 20 seconds about my house, this party, and they only did about 40 seconds on the 200,000 person festival down the street. So, you know, we knew that we, we had something special and, uh, you know, we duplicated that a few more times. I think we did three total influential houses and then realized that the liability, you know, especially once we got investment was too great. So didn't continue on that path, but, um, you know, ended up making a really great sizzle reel for it. Um, and then use that in, in some of our fundraising efforts. And, um, you know, I think it was a, a great inflection point because, all the biggest influencers now knew about us because of that. And they, you know, kind of the, the, the word of mouth spread like wildfire in the community. And we were able to grow our, you know, influencer network from, you know, dozens or maybe a, a few hundred at most, and then expanded rapidly. These days it's three, three and a half million uh, creators on our platform. But, you know, those were, those were simpler times. And I think that that event had a, had a lot to do with, you know, kind of creating that hype cycle where we had all the top creators with us there and kind of made everybody put everyone on a notice uh, as to who influential was. Talk to me about the monetization of that back yeah. then. Like, what did it look like for, like, how did the business function? Explain that to me. Like, I understand you're throwing these parties yeah. at Coachella. You've got this house you've got all these influencers coming in and it's, yeah. it's the hip place to be a lot of young 
influencers without a lot of money okay. and they're coming and they're partying and having a great time okay. and meeting each other. And I know you're making, you're building relationships with them, but how did the monetization work for, for the business back at that time? Yeah, sure. So what's interesting is that like the parties were definitely not like uh, the main component of it at all. It was sort of just a, a hype sort of thing. And what you could do, and you can still do this is you can do influencer social media activations at events. Um, and, and they're a great backdrop for them. So brands do that kind of stuff all the time. But the true core of our business and what we typically do is is not through events. It's it's through running a media campaign using social media influencers. And so basically we hire all of these influencers um, and we have um, our, um, our platform actually chooses them based on data and analytics that prove that they're the best influencers. And we present those influencers to a client. Client chooses, you know, because it, there is a, a great amount of it that's, you know, data-driven, but there's also still the human element. So, uh, you know, we would give those options to the brands and then they would pick a set of influencers based on our recommendations. And then we would create, uh, you know, they, they might come to us with a brief of what they want to do. Um, we would then work with the influencer to come up with the creative for it. Um, run the campaign, which was, you know, have the influencers post on their channels about uh, the content. And um, and then we would give a full uh, back-end report that showed all the results of it. And, you know, we would continue to do that over and over with the brands that we'd continue to work with. I understand you're spreading awareness about the brand. You know, if well, you've got an influencer posting um you're spreading awareness now. Are these also um, like opportunities to purchase the product or is it more about brand awareness? Yeah, in the early stages of it, it was very much awareness-based because the technologies hadn't really been built out. But over over the years, we continued to innovate our technology. We, you know, we created AI influencer marketing with IBM Watson back in 2016. So we were able to actually utilize AI to help better identify the best influencers, you know, having the AI read everything that they'd put out on the history of social and what brands have put out on social and analyze that into personality characteristics. And so that was one of our first innovations. And then eventually we got to a point where, you know, we're the leader in, in the world at what we do. And the main reason is because we bring it back to actual return on investment, what they call ROI in our business. And, and that's because we can measure, you know, uh, did somebody see an ad that we did on social, uh, an influencer post, and then go into a, a, a McDonald's and we can measure that the foot traffic went into the store. We can also measure, uh, you know, did somebody end up tuning into something as a result of being promoted to on social so we can affect TV tune-in lift. And then probably the greatest thing that we can do is we actually have the ability in like grocery stores and drug stores to measure um, actual sales. So somebody went into a store and then purchased something using their loyalty cards, we could actually track against that and see if somebody actually made a purchase as a result of the ads that we did on social. So it became very um, results driven. And that's, you know, that's where the industry is today is it's all about, you know, it, it's table stakes at this point to have, um, you know, brand recognition. That's, that's obvious. That's part of why you do it. But, but the, the real reason that you know that we get the great results that we do is because we can draw it back to actual sales, uh, foot traffic, and tune-in results. Yeah. So this is fascinating stuff. What 
platforms are most uh, effective right now? Like, I know you've got influencers mm-hmm. on all these different platforms. Which yeah. ones are really hip right now? Which ones Bonk. are really crushing it in terms of, um, you know, the ROI and, and the okay. other metrics that you talked about? Yeah, I mean, Instagram has been a mainstay for many years. Um, I would say TikTok is sort of the hot newer thing, though it's been around a few years now. Um, and then Snapchat has recently uh, gotten a little bit more results driven. They weren't letting people get the data that they needed. Brands couldn't get the data that they needed. And so that was problematic, but they're actually making big strides now to uh, to, to actually be a part of that. So that's becoming sort of a, a highly requested platform. Um, but I would say those are like the major ones. Um, you still get people who want to do Facebook, um, but that sort of tends to be like older skewing. Um, and then there's people that still do YouTube. Um, YouTube is something we, we do a little bit in. When we entered the industry, it was sort of like the industry standard. And um, we looked to kind of, there was, there was a bunch of companies called multi-channel networks at that time that were very heavy into that business. So we went into these other platforms, um, you know, to try to kind of go against the grain on that. And it paid off really well. Um, we still do some YouTube campaigns, but I would say the core of it is probably uh, Instagram and TikTok these days. Yeah, that's interesting. I was wondering about YouTube because I would assume that YouTube would be one of the biggest ones, mm-hmm. um, you know, not knowing, not, not really mm-hmm. knowing your industry. I would assume that YouTube. Um, so was that kind of the the original place where it started, and then it spread out from there? Yeah, I would say in the early days it was YouTube and Twitter. Twitter eventually became um, just a place where the engagement wasn't that great, and you know it was much more text based. It wasn't as much like rich media, even though you can do photos and videos. So um, you know, Twitter had a few year run where it was relevant to us, and then it kind of dialed back a bit. Um, and then Instagram really just kind of took off. And I think to this day, that tends to be like the main place where people look to do campaigns, but TikTok is definitely in high demand. And, you know, these days I think, you know, a lot of times we'll get, you know, clients that want to do across the board. And so we could literally spread it out into two, three, even four platforms. So, um, it just depends on the content, you know, YouTube tends to be a little bit more longer form content. So I think typically um, when you're talking about like brand content, unless you're, unless you're creating a series where you have a little bit of branding inside of it, um, you know, people's attention span for like advertising is, is more, uh, concentrated into shorter periods of time. So I think you see that more with, um, you know, Instagram and TikTok and, and short form platforms. I got you. I got you. So, um, so you started back in 2013 and um, tell me about the growth of the company and how it was that you were able to scale the business because you all have just grown. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been an exponential curve for you guys. I feel like um, you t- talk to me about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it was, you know, I'm happy that my brother was able to identify early on that this was a, a hot industry and that there was a, a huge uh appetite for it. So um, I think, first of all, we got into a great business at a very early period of time. And um, we constantly looked to innovate. Like I was saying, you know, we we created, we productized things, we created AI influencer marketing and, um, you know, made sure that that it fit into the, um, into the, um, 
guidelines of what advertising um, uh, advertising agencies were looking for, so we could work with both the advertising. In fact, in the beginning, it was almost exclusively advertising agencies. As things went on, we would go brand direct, and now it's sort of a mix of those things. But um, very early on, we had to appeal to the agencies, and so um, you know, really had the first couple of years was a lot of education, just teaching about what influencer marketing was, how to do it, best practices, all that sort of stuff. Then I would say maybe like halfway through the journey, you know, like maybe 2017, 18, it became fairly ubiquitous and people, um, you know, expected to do influencer marketing and, and now it's, you know, a mandate for the most part. So, um, yeah, we've just, we've positioned ourselves well from early on, uh, created, um, very, very, uh, innovative, uh, technologies and, uh, constantly iterated, uh, made a better mousetrap at all times. And then, you know, from my side of things, my my uh, talent and gift has always been marketing and, and public relations. And so uh, I've been able to, you know, in, infuse my my talents into that. And we are we're without question, the most talked about company in our space. Um, and that's due a large part to our, you know, our really strong PR efforts and constantly being in the in the headlines. And I know you had a couple of really big announcements this week. Yep. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, we had uh, it's been a busy week, back to back, huge announcements. So uh, yesterday we announced. Um, so this is the second year we've curated uh, or co-curated alongside Forbes. Uh, Forbes's top creator list, which is a list of the fifty biggest and most relevant creators of of our time. Um, you know, Forbes, lar- Forbes being a preeminent business publication, largely weights it on how much money these influencers make. But it's not solely on that. There are people lower down the list that make more money than the people that are higher on the list. But they factored in things like entrepreneurialism and engagement rates and, you know, a number of different factors that kind of decided uh, a weighted scale. And so, um, yeah, it's been fun. Like we did it last year to, to great success and, uh, they had us back again this year and it's, it's a, quite a lift cause you gotta reach out to all the influencers, get them to be aboard for it. And then even, pro, you know, produce financials, which, you know, most people don't want to like, you know, open that up to the people, but it's, it's sort of a requirement and, you know, luckily, you know, people want to be in Forbes and, uh, it was actually really fun yesterday to, you know, to l- have the list go out and see, you know, these, these creators that are, are friends of mine, you know, have their dreams come true and, you know, be like, you know, I remember I saw one, one girl that I'm friends with, you know, it's like, mom, we made it, you know, like that's, that's really awesome. And to, to be uh, a conduit to that is, is really fun. And, um, you know, it's great to work with the Forbes team and we, we do a big celebration for it. Uh, celebration this year will happen uh, in a couple months in November, but um, it's really great to, see the culmination of that so that was a really exciting announcement and um and then today uh we partnered with ad age which is one of the biggest advertising trade publications in our industry and we created what's called a custom report and it's basically a um an analysis of our industry kind of talks about all of the uh exciting trajectory of the industry and then also has uh five case studies in it from uh, a number of our top brand partners um, you know, we primarily work with Fortune 500 companies, and so this is the likes of McDonald's and Hilton and uh, TIAA and Essence and Toyota. So, um, really, like a who's who, and 
each each campaign kind of represented different capabilities and kind of got to showcase all of these um, talents that we have as a company that make us unique. And so um, it was a, um, a really exciting piece to put out. We've been working on it for, I'd say, four or five months and many, many revisions and many permissions needed from brands and, and all that sort of stuff. So uh, seeing the culmination of that today was really, really exciting. That's that's awesome. So you mentioned that you primarily work with Fortune 500 companies, and you know, these are massive companies. Is there any room in this influencer marketing world for small businesses? Is there any um, – it, are, are they able to play in the game at all, or is a it thousand just percent? A, is, yeah. Oh, it's actually it's actually a, the great thing about it is it's totally scalable, and it's there, there's influencer marketing capabilities of all sizes and shapes. Um, you can be an independent company with one employee, and you can employ influencer marketing tactics. Granted, you're not going to be able to hire influential or one of you know one of one of the other companies in the space because you know at at Fortune 500 level, obviously, you can imagine that's you know six and seven figure budgets. But you know, if you have a cool product or service or whatever, you can do this yourself. You can you can get on your social platforms, either do it through your own personal social channels or create a business and do it through those channels. But you know, it's basically the greatest. Um, you know, social media is the greatest word of mouth tool that's ever existed. So it's basically just like a a bullhorn for you to be able to get out there and promote your business. So, you know, if you have um, a product company, get your your product into the hands of people, and you know, do an exchange with them. Say, I will gift you this product product in an exchange. Um, I'd like for you to post about it or do a story about it on Instagram or whatever. And so, yeah, for very little money, you can do it yourself. Um, obviously, you won't get the the data and the analytics and and that sort of stuff that we do, but um, you know, there's there's definitely the, the the ability to use social media to your advantage and uh, tap influencers, and it's you know oftentimes you can just go to their pages and there's some sort of a contact on there, so you can email them through that or you can direct message them, and um, you know doesn't doesn't mean that you'll if if you scale up to larger scale influencers they're gonna want money they don't just take freebie stuff but sort of like small businesses can use small influencers and. Um, you know, a lot of times the most effective use of influencers is is finding people who are authentic to a category. So, you know, if you're if you're selling fishing poles or something like that, just giving you a wild example, you could probably find fishing influencers that maybe have five, ten thousand followers, but have domain expertise, and the the audience that follows them follows them because of that domain expertise. And if they're recommending a product or a service or whatever. Um, I think that you know you stand a pretty good chance of of gaining some new uh, followers and fans and traction as a result. Is this something that you could do for a like a law office, for example? You know, mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. T um, tell me how that would work. Talk that through with me. Like I'm trying to think of how I could um, use this. I mean, you could you could potentially trade for for legal services and have you know them do a testimonial for you and talk about how. You know, when they used Irons at Irons Law Firm, um, that that Gib was so gracious to them and professional, and that he, uh, you know, got their case uh, wrapped up quickly and got a positive result. You know, I, I wouldn't say that um, law firms are are the, the typical customer, and I 
don't even recall necessarily that we've ever handled that, but I absolutely think that it's something that you could use an influencer for. Um, I think it's just, you know, the, there's that side of it, what I think would probably be the most authentic is that side of perspective. Um, but then there's also just the possibility that you could pay influencers and they could, they could post about you and, you know, they might not have that like personalized story. So it might not be as authentic, but uh, they have eyeballs. And, you know, if you were to find, um, you know, find people in your local market, especially uh, that have large audiences, um, yeah, you can, you can use, utilize them to draw attention to your, to your firm. So have you ever worked with Mr. Beast? Um, we have spoken about working with Mr. Beast. He's a, yeah, he, he actually was number one on that Forbes list. Um, he is the biggest, highest grossing influencer in the world right now. And it's, you know, it's several million dollars to work with them. So I'm, I'm hoping sooner or later, uh, yes, but I don't believe that we've currently done a project with him yet. Do you know where he lives by chance? I believe in Los Angeles. I'm not sure though. He lives in uh, Greenville, North Carolina. Is that right? He lives here. Yeah, he lives here in Greenville, where I'm located. So, do you, do you um, see him out? I've never seen him out, but people that I know have worked for him in the past. You know, like I know guys mm -hmm. that do the videographers and editors mm -hmm. and stuff like that, and they've worked for Mr. Beast. But mm -hmm. yeah, he's got. He lives here in Greenville, North Carolina. He's got. Is he from there? A house in a. I don't know if he is or not, but yeah. um, he must be. I mean, he yeah. must be. He lives here in a neighborhood right down the road from me, and he's bought several of the houses in that neighborhood yeah. going around basically knocking on doors and saying, hey, look, <laughs> are you trying to keep your house, or is this something that you would entertain selling? And he's offered people like all cash you know, eh? like a hundred grand more, like outrageously more than what yeah. your house is worth mm -hmm. um, to like get out now so that he can bring his people in and have them all living in the same neighborhood. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he's right down the road from me. Like eh? um, he lives in a, in a subdivision that's probably uh, two miles from my house. Mm -hmm. That's but super yeah, I've cool. never seen him. Yeah, it is pretty cool. I, I've mm -hmm. never seen him before, but I know yeah. he's super big in your industry. And oh yeah, the biggest. Um, I did not. He made thirty-five, yeah. forty. But actually, it might have been like sixty million, something. I mean, makes crazy, crazy money. And uh, it's funny, actually. I've heard on interviews of him, he actually isn't into like all the flash. You're probably not going to catch him like riding around in a Lambo or anything like that. He just wants to be able to do his craft at the highest level. And that's sort of been like what's been unique about him is he will create a multi-million dollar um you know video like you like when uh squid game was the big game uh you know or uh, the big show on netflix he actually created an actual squid game situation that was like i think it was like four million dollars or something like that but that's that's the extent he goes to for his audience and you know when you're big on youtube you actually get paid for the views because they do in advertising in between it there's something called Google AdSense that they pay you on. And when you have as many clicks as him, you get paid a lot of money. So um, aside from being able to do brand deals with him, he's made a lot, probably the lion's share of his money just through the audience that he gets on YouTube. So he takes that money and reinvests it in constantly raising the bar for the content that he's creating. So um, it's, it's an interesting model. It's worked very, very well for him. And you know, he's, as a result, probably the most well-recognized influencer on the planet. I actually did.
didn't really know anything about him until, um, I don't know, maybe a year ago or, you know, one to two years ago. I don't know how long he's been doing it, but I assume he's been at the top for a long time from what I hear from other people. But, um, I had never heard of him till, you know, maybe a year ago. And then I found out that he actually lives here in Greenville, which is pretty cool. Fascinating. I mean, I, I don't remember hearing about him longer than four or five years ago. Um, I'm sure he's been at it for a while. I mean, sort of thing doesn't happen overnight, but uh, yeah, he, he sure got big. Tell me, what what do you see as the next step for influential? I mean, you've well, had all this massive success. Kind of, well, let's talk, you know, in in long time, time periods. Like, let's talk, okay. you know, 10 years from now, where do you see influential being i i hard to I, say i couldn't right? even really guess because because the 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 rate of um innovation is just so great i mean just this year alone generative generative ai came into the frame and all of a sudden everything yeah. is crazy and everybody's talking about ai so i can't say what i expect that world to be like it's just it's too far out to project <laughs> but i mean I would say like, you know, the, the shorter term next few years sort of goal is, you know, this, make this company into a billion dollar company that they call a unicorn. Um, I think that's a very realistic possibility. Uh, we're not that far away from it. And the, like the industry keeps growing. And even though the economy is in sort of a mucky place right now, our industry keeps growing and we keep growing. So, um, you know, there's a lot of blue sky ahead. Yeah. Chris, talk to me a little bit about your schedule. Um, I mean, I know that when we when we met up back in May, um, you mentioned to me that you travel. I think it was like a hundred and eighty days a year or something like that. No, not quite that much, thank God. That'd be half the Is time. It? I'd say I'd say close to a hundred, <laughs> close to a hundred days. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've made a real goal to be uh, at all of the most important. Um, uh, social and, um, you know, the tentpole events of the year, the, the big moments. So I'm at, you know, the Super Bowl and South by Southwest and Can Lions Festival and Advertising Week and so many other little things. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think a lot of our success has just been sending our best people out, you know, to, to, to meet the people. And there's so many marketing events and, um, you know, if you tap into these things and you have existing relationships, we've we've built ourselves to the point that, you know, when we go to these events, we we know a ton of people already and our credibility is such now that it's it's way easier than it used to be. So if we can just show up at the right places and, you know, do do a little bit of um, recon before as to who's gonna be there, do some outreach and tell them that we'll be there, we can set up meetings pretty easily and you know, really, I, I see myself as the top of the marketing funnel. I'm, I'm constantly trying to feed new clients into that, introduce them into our company, and then you know hand that off to our, our business development and our sales team and have them drive that business home. So that's been a, um, you know, a big part of, of what I do. And um, you know, within that, a lot of times there's speaking engagement opportunities. So um, you know, and, and also another side facet of it is I have all these celebrity relationships and I've started booking them to speak at a lot of these events. And so, um, in some cases I actually get to interview the celebrities and the influencers myself, or my brother gets a chance to do it. And 
it's really been a way for us to to make a a huge uh, impact and and really uh, you know make our 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 company that much more uh, prevalent in the industry. Let me ask you this: Do you how do you map out all that travel? Is that something that you Where? sit down? Um, at the beginning of the year and you say these are all the events I'm going to do or is it something that um, there's new events popping up all the time that you did not plan to go to that you're like "Ah, I need to go to this yeah I have like a set what's your what's your planning I have a very set agenda at this point I mean we're you know nearly 10 years into our business now so um, you know the 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 popular inflection points do exist you know I I start the beginning of the year at uh, CES which is the big electronics trade show in, in Las Vegas and you know and then I go to the Super Bowl and then I go to South by Southwest um, and then I go to the Can Lions Film Fest or Can Lions Advertising Creativity Festival um, and then I go to Advertising Week um, those are sort of like the staple events but then you know there's all sorts of um, actually started going to NBA All-Star pretty much every year um f1 the the racing series has become really popular so i've started going to some of those events um and then yeah there's there's all sorts of serendipity throughout the year new events that pop up or you know last minute opportunities crazy things that we get the opportunity to jump on get invited to something cool so yeah it's it's um a little bit of 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 straightforward planning a little bit of serendipity cool well chris um look i really appreciate you you coming on today um for people that want to reach out to you, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, sure. They can reach out to me. Uh, probably via email would be the easiest. And it's uh, my okay. first initial C and my last name, Dietert, D-E-T-E-R-T, at influential.co, like .co. Okay, cool. Well, Chris, look, thanks a lot. I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Gid. It was fun. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Go Big with Gib. If you haven't already, go follow us on social media at Gib Irons. We'll see you next time.